Hi, Katie. Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. (laughs) Oh, that was so beautiful. (laughs) Every week I wanted to get more operatic, (laughs) so by the end it's like you just doing full-on Pavarotti. Uh, How are you? It's Friday today, everyone. It is Friday. we are drinking beers. Yep. Which is different. We usually record on a Tuesday, which is more like, you know, midweek vibes, but... We've got our beers, so we apologise if we get slightly more drunk. Yeah. Towards <laughs> it's been a weird old week. It has. How has your week been? Tell us. Uh, well, I mean, the reason we're going uh, so late is because work is being an arse again. So I, I had a temper tantrum and stormed out. That was pretty cool. But I didn't really storm out because at home, right? So Yeah, it's like you don't really storm out. You're just turning off teams. Yeah. <laughs> um, and no one so... notices. But in my head, it's really dramatic and it's like brilliant. Yeah, it's weird because I mean, like, our weekends. When we was at, like, always ask the question, "What did you do at the weekend?" But like, it's always like the previous weekend from the weekend that's just gone. To for, for you listeners. Yeah, so the weekend that just went for you listeners, we haven't had yet. Yeah, so. that's in the future. <laughs> but the exciting thing about that weekend, which has already happened for you, but hasn't happened for us yet, is that me and Dan are seeing each other for the first time. In, like, how long? Five months? Yeah, like, life is resuming, kind of, in a small way. It, in a small way. <laughs> it's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Get to get drunk Yeah, me park, too. And then get some pub action. Yeah. Maybe get some poutine action, like I said. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a pub in Greenwich, everyone, called the Gypsy Moth. And it does poutine. And uh, why is it called the Gypsy Moth? Do you know, Dan? The I do not the know. Moth? It's the first... English ship to sail like around the world, like around the globe, oh. and that's where it landed in Greenwich. So oh, that's why that's called the Gypsy Moth. So, yeah, it's a lot of cool history in Greenwich. Like you can just go walk around and see all these like cool buildings and yeah, it's yeah, and loads there. of films are filmed there. You've got like the uh, Maritime Museum, which is wicked. We should definitely check that out. Yeah, Maritime Museum is amazing. The observatory is amazing, yeah. and they have um, they have one of those audio tours. Um, that you plug in and um, it's like a kind of like an RPG. They're like, this is where I lived and this is the room you're walking into now is my bedroom and look at my, like it speaks in first person, like you're <laughs> being given a tour by this like 18th century like lady. That's awesome. Which I really loved. Matt kind of hated it. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. <laughs> I was like, this is, I'm like time traveling. <laughs> And also the park is the most beautiful park of all the parks in London. That is a bold claim, but I'm going to stand by it. Yeah, it's so nice. And it's um, in the winter. So I went, this is where I went to university in Greenwich for my BA. Is and, it? Um, I not know that. Yeah, that's, I why, know that's that. how I, why I know it so well. And that's why I chose to go there for my birthday thing. But um, I it snowed one year. Well, I snowed every year, but I snowed like really heavily one year I was there. And you go to the park and it was like Narnia. Oh, nice. Because it's so, like, hilly and everyone was going down the hill on yeah, sledges. Did, yeah. And, oh, it was so nice. It was literally like a wonderland. I can't even tell you. That sounds amazing. But it was, it was, it was amazing. Like, really, really awesome that snow. And the buildings just all look so beautiful. I haven't been studying in years. I really want to do that again. That is some fun shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm opening I just don't feel like we're ever going to get good snow again here because... um. Because we're burning the planet. 
to a yeah. cinder. Yeah, definitely. Need to go to like somewhere colder to get proper good snow. Yeah, I mean, it has basically just been like Australia here for like the entire summer, so <laughs> it's, it's definitely going a bit crazy. But apparently it's not. I mean, like, that's what Trump keeps saying, isn't it? Like, apparently we're imagining this. None of this has happened, people. Yeah. I mean, we're coming up to that time now where he could be kicked out of the White House. And I'm just like, even though I'm not like a massive Joe Biden fan. Yeah. Because he is kind of dry. It like, is... I I would much rather yeah. have him. It is weird than... being like so excited about the prospect of someone so uninspiring. But I know. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, because obviously... In terms of my politics, they align a lot more with Bernie. Yeah. And also, I actually really did like Elizabeth Warren as well. Yeah, I liked, I liked her with Lizzie Warren. But um, but I'd obviously rather have pretty much anyone but Trump. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, yeah, we can get rid of him. I mean, like, it just seems like such a kind of, like, a pipe dream, like, a few months ago. But now, actually, it, it feels like he's going to go. I think coronavirus maybe has pushed yeah. him out. And the Black Lives Matter movement as well. Yeah. So, so let's hope. So um, hopefully, this is just a blip in history and not something that's actually gonna. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird blip. Hurtling towards some kind of. Like that time that we tried to be. not have a monarchy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that went out really well for us. Mr. Crummy. Oh, poor Crummy. Yeah, we're walking past the um, Houses of Parliament, actually. And I was looking up at it and I was like. I really wish I could said to Matt, I was like, I really wish I could have seen his head. And he was like, What? And he was like, I was like, Cromwell's head. Because they had it on like a spike. I was like, Pardon me. And he's looking at me like I'm an absolute freak. And I'm like, Oh, is that weird? Like, I don't think that's weird. There's so many... I want to see Cromwell's head. What's the problem with that? Oh, yeah, I would just like to go back to the time when like heads were just generally displayed. Like, it's quite like a generally it's quite an intriguing displayed. thing, isn't it? Just like, That's the decor you're going for. Cool. Cool, nice. Yeah, I like it. And we don't know where his head is, do we? No. Like, got taken down and buried somewhere, anonymous or something. Yeah. Speaking of heads, do we know where uh, Bentham Bentham's head is? Wasn't that stolen by, like, students from a different... As in the philosopher Bentham? Yeah. Was it Bentham? Do we know where Bentham... His embalmed corpse is is still, like, uh, is it UCL? He gets wheeled out for the meetings. I I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) So apparently, At like all. some st- like students, so I can't remember what university it's from, but like a ri- one of the rival London universities stole his head and used it as a footballer. Like, I don't know, that <laughs> might be just be like an urban myth, but apparently. I like it. I really hope it's true. <laughs> I really hope it's true. Yeah, I really want it because obviously we were due to go to Vietnam before coronavirus oh, happened, yeah, yeah. and one of the things I really want to see was to see Ho Chi Minh's body. Um, yeah. but Matt was like you can't laugh and I was like I'm definitely gonna laugh like everyone's gonna be so serious just like bowing and crying and there's gonna be me like oh no don't laugh like, like yeah to my shame I missed like going there like we had one like an afternoon left in Hanoi and we were like it was like a decision between like Ho Chi Minh's body and like the uh, the old forbidden like uh like city, uh, and we yeah. chose the chose the other one because we were like. Well, I'm sure you'll go to Vietnam again. Oh yeah, at I'm some definitely point. going there. Yeah, definitely. When my contract ends, I'm fucking off over there. <laughs> Bye. 
Speaking of Asia, should we talk about your person? Yes. Because I think it's quite long, isn't it? It is quite long, yeah. So we're doing this for the second time, listeners, because the... Uh... Yeah, so this is, you know, not the... I'm going to pretend that this is the first time I've heard the story. <laughs> Why, but that... it's so crazy that actually hearing it a second time will, like, actually be like, oh shit, I forgot about this bit. Like, And if yeah. we throw beer into the mix, it's going to be a, a good thing. <laughs> so... The reason I picked this person is because, so the the last weekend that happened for us, rather than you, was VJ Day, mm-hmm. when everyone was celebrating. And remind us when that is, actually. Yeah, uh, victory. Uh, so that was the 15th of August. It's the day before my birthday. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, so while everyone else was uh, commemorating that through jingoistic flag-waving, uh, we decided to have a weekend um, of eating various dishes to commemorate the various revolutions that came out of Second World War and freed Asia from colonialism. And also, I decided to pick a person that kind of comes from that era. Not the, probably not the era. Kind of. I mean, like he does play a part in it, but he's also insane and not... Yeah, it's and a not, mad story, so... Not, not a hero, like... Just quite <laughs> quite insane, really. Even though he's kind of yeah. mixed up in all of that. So, how have you? Well, I know you have because I told you about him yesterday. But I'm gonna ask anyway. Have you heard of Colonel Suji Masanobu? Well, I hadn't as before yesterday. <laughs> so yesterday was the first time I heard of him, and I'm actually quite excited to hear the story again because he is <laughs> mental. So, but yeah. Let's hope I can uh, do justice uh, this time Again, around. the second time. <laughs> okay, so, Suji was born to a poor family in rural Ishikawa pre- Prefecture on the 11th of October, 1900. Uh, so he was from a poor family. He wasn't from the uh, kind of samurai class, which is traditionally where the uh, Japanese officers kind of like come from. Uh, so realising he had to work his way out of his kind of like low-born predicament. He uh, he really, really worked hard at school, so he shone academically. At 16, he uh, managed to enter the preparatorial uh, military school and then went on to the Tokyo Military Academy where he graduated top of his class, so he was quite a gifted student. He apparently was also quite a seemingly magnetic figure and managed to pick up a band of followers and helpers who would... Uh, help propel him uh, throughout his career. He had quite a distinctive look. He was clean-shaven, uh, like full-on Bic razor to the head, I think. Like, Yeah, I, that, so, did I ever told you about my thing about watching people shave? No. Okay, so <laughs> this is a weird thing. So, you know, in like, some movies, people don't like watching gore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm absolutely fine with gore. I can watch someone get their like guts, like... Like, you know, hacked off, yeah, like, yeah. arms chopped off, blood everywhere. But I cannot watch someone shave. Really? Yeah. Like, just, watching like, people like, shave, even with just like, like a, normal... a safety razor. Yeah, you can't even do that. No. I can't. It's... it's just, it's something about, it, obviously, like, I shave my legs and stuff, hmm. so I'm fine with actually doing the act. But watching someone shave, it's almost like I'm waiting for them to cut themselves. 
Yeah, I know you were oh, like... Oh, it's like maybe like too intimate or something. I don't know what it is, but I hate watching people shave. I guess it might be something to do with like not trusting another person. Right? Like I'd never, I'd never let someone shave me. Like that is, that's not happening. <laughs> that's the, never. That's the worst thing in the world. I never, I never start watching people be like just shaved. I mean, I guess that is with like an open razor, but still, it's just like, what are you doing? Like, you are the most insane person I've ever seen in my life. Oh no, yeah. I, I don't know. There's the only two things that I can't watch are watching people shave and also like um, people putting like piercings through themselves. Ooh. Or so, so there's, I don't know if you've ever seen the Jackass movie. Yeah. But there's oh, a yeah, bit where yeah, Steve O yeah. puts a, um, he puts a fish hook through his face. Oh yeah, yeah. That's oh great. my God. And that set me off. I, but I can watch like, yeah, like I said, limbs coming off, heads coming off, all sorts of gore. <laughs> and I'm just there like, yes, sweet, cool gore. But I don't know, it's just something really intimate about putting a needle through yourself. Yeah. Because I've got loads of tattoos and piercings. So it doesn't bother me. It's just like when you do it to yourself. Just... Anyway, that's my basically. I've got some sort of deep seated trauma <laughs> about that. I'm not good with piercings. I got the only thing I ever had pierced on my lip, and when it had like when I had it done, I was so kind of like shocked afterwards. I tried to walk out the like fire escape, and they had to kind of like grab me by the shoulders and like direct me in the right direction. <laughs> not good. <laughs> yeah, because you had your lip pierced when I met you. Yeah, I yeah. Out, like it's gone now. Yeah, I got Why to get out? I was like. Uh, I was losing anyway, faith in my youth. Away from the therapy <laughs> session and back to the history. <laughs> so, Suji had a problem with authority from the beginning of his military career. So, in about 1930, he attended the War University as a kind of like a lowly lieutenant, where he instantly uh, quarreled with instructors on matters of military tactics. So, he kind of became like a leading proponent of the uh, Gekko Kujo. Or leadership, leadership from below, uh, kind of like a movement <laughs> that like, happened in Japan during the thirties. So yeah, that was kind of like a massive thing. Then that was basically what caused things like the Mukden inc- incident, like the entire taking over of Manchuria was caused by like this weird kind of uh, like like thing that was going on in Japan where junior officers were just like, yeah, I mean, like, I don't really like what's going on now, so I'm just gonna, oh, should we just do whatever we want? That they'll, they'll have to follow us <laughs> with like no repercussions. Yeah, exactly. No one yeah. was getting like for any of this so yeah he was also kind of just like generally naturally kind of like inclined towards war like it seemed like probably like a bit psychotic i i so it's like one story so on february in february 1932 he landed in china during the first shanghai incident as a company commander where he kind of lost about 16 men during a skirmish so he read the adrenaline he felt as excitement as opposed to anything kind of like negative. He said he emerged gripping his sword with soaring spirits. I mean, like soaring spirits. You've just seen your, you've seen sixteen yeah. of your mates die just like in front of you. Like, and you're just I like, feel so good right now. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like a Winning. game, of, like a game of paintball or something. We <laughs> totally like smashed those guys. Like. <laughs> But they're all dead, man. Like... They're all dead, all of them. <laughs> we, we, we won the game, though. Yeah, mm. it gets kind of crazy. So, um, well, I say he's kind of like over the years from like historians, he's kind of like gained a reputation as like an arch uh, ultra nationalist. He was never a member of the fascistic Imperial Way or Kodo faction, uh, but rather a member of the control faction, as known as Tose, uh, like Tojo, as uh, we have covered in the 
first episode. First episode. Welcome back, Call Tojo. Back. <laughs> Call back. <laughs> All of history is just one big callback. Like... <laughs> it is just a huge callback. Many <laughs> centuries of callback. So, when the Kodo faction were ready to mount a coup in uh, November 1934, Suji, who was then a captain um, and a trainer at the uh, military academy, kind of learned that like five of his cadets were involved in the planning. And so he then infiltrated one of his trusted cadets into their group and was able to get a list of names and evidence, which he then sent to a major Katakura at Imperial Headquarters, which uh, resulted in the arrest of those students. So he may have like helped foil that plot. Uh, of course, those students were never convicted. Uh, they were just like expelled from the academy. Um, just completely like yeah okay bye bye now you're not gonna try it again are you <laughs> stop on the not wrist try again. Stop um, he was also one of the leading kind of proponents of uh, Japanese pan-Asianism as well a movement that was kind of like dedicated to the removing of western colonialism uh, in Asia and uh, uniting the continent under Japanese leadership he said himself it was his goal to make Asia one great brotherhood and Asia for the Asians you have to remember, like, this in this kind of, like, colonial context. Uh, so, it's kind of like, this is the time when Asia, most, except for, like, the entirety of Asia, except for two countries, was colonised by uh, by yeah. Western powers. And they kind of, like, ruled these colonies, like, through a system of, like, white, like, white supremacy, basically, which is, like, incredibly, like, dehumanising. Like, yeah. Create, like, making people, like, second-class citizens in, like, their own country is insane. So, he's, like, he's like a pan-Asianist, right? Yeah. And that, so to him, that's um, is that like Japan, China, and and like uh, you know I, Korea, or is that to him like a bit wider? He's for him, I think it covers just like all of Asia, including like Southeast Asia and stuff, and probably like India as well. But I mean, like there were some like Pan Asianists, like she uh, made like a Kawa, who's probably like the main uh, like philosopher or academic, like. Of kind of like the movement, if it was a movement, like it was such a disjointed thing that like it's hard to like really call it a proper yeah. movement. But I mean, like to him, it was just like any country that was like colonized by the West, and like went as far as like Africa, like Ethiopia for him. So yeah, it was just kind of like a, it was just basically whichever like a, one yeah. someone picked, basically. Yeah. But obviously, for yeah, for him, it was like um based around Japan being in charge. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like yeah. it, it was, it, they were always going to be like the leader in kind of like in their view so originally Suji was a leading promoter of the strike north doctrine so these supporters believed that like japan should attack the soviet union to create a buffer state in siberia to ensure japan's dominance like over manchuria and uh, eliminate the threat of russian encroachment on the asian continent so this is kind of like an overhang like from the rivalry that grew between the two countries in the lead up to the russia japanese war as such to test the water, Suji provoked the uh, Nam Onhan incident, so a border clash between the Soviets and the Japanese. So the the government in Tokyo was dead against any conflict with Russia, but Suji drafted an aggressive order on border security that ignored national boundaries. So he wrote it was it was permissible to enter Soviet territory or to trap or lure Soviet troops into Manchurian territory, and it read fight until victory is won so yeah just a colonel i don't think he was even a colonel yet he's probably just like a major or something just writing a essentially an order to start a war 
with another country. Yeah, that's probably not allowed. But he yeah. just did it anyway. He just so did it. Yeah. He, just he, did it. Like it. he was really a... went for it, this guy. And this was in 1939 as well. So, like, Japan was already in like, the midst of like a full on war with China. Like, they didn't. They didn't have anywhere yeah. near like the, uh, the 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 yeah yeah the supplies to to be fighting um, this. Um, so the Nanan incident was, of course, a disaster. So although the Japanese kind of showed skills and managed to inflict more casualties on the Russians, and the Russians managed to inflict on them, uh, they were outnumbered <clears throat> by th- three to one, basically. Yeah, and over five to one in tanks. Yeah, also, the Russians so, just have so many people, don't they? Yeah, exactly. They've it's just, just like got a, so many people. A bottomless like, pit of just yeah, humanity. Of That's just crazy. <laughs> also, they uh, so yeah, they were outnumbered like five to one in tanks, and also Japanese tanks, which oh, Soviet tanks were far, 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 far superior to their Japanese counterparts. <laughs> so much superior. Japanese Japanese tanks are terrible. They were they were terrible throughout the war. Uh, they completely failed to keep up with anyone else's technology in that area. In most other areas, actually. Um, so, yeah. So, Suji's part in the incident did damage his standing, but the uh, the damage was only short-lived, mainly because he had recruited such a large retinue of friends and acolytes who would shield his downfall and then help propel him again after after all this had passed. I'm shaking my head. <laughs> you can't so, see it, but I'm shaking my head. One of the reasons for his bounce back was that he quickly came to the conclusion that attacking Russia was folly. As such, he then <laughs> became one of the leading advocates of the Strike South Doctrine and the attack on Pearl Harbor. So instead of going, oh, okay then, so that, that didn't really work against Russia. Maybe we should not go to war. He was he like, went, maybe we should just try going the other way. Yeah, well, just, maybe we should just attack America instead. Yeah, like, they're, really America big aren't country. that big, are they? They're Let's not like <laughs> they haven't got like good stuff in America, do they? Oh. The other reason why he didn't want to attack North is because he didn't believe that his that that their that their Axis partner Germany was trustworthy. So, oh, oh really? You don't think Hitler's Hitler's trustworthy? <laughs> So what a really surprise. novel idea. <laughs> so during the Nanan incident, right in the midst of it was when Germany had signed the uh, the non-aggression pact with Stalin. So after that, Suji was just like, right, that's it. That's over. We need to go our own way. <laughs> so later, <laughs> General Yukichi Tanaka, senior army minister official, Right after the war, that's the most determined single protagonist for war against the United States was lowly Major Suji. So basically, he like made the war against the United States happen. Yeah, almost as a as a relatively junior officer. So, in December 1940, three Japanese infantry divisions were sent for tropical training in Taiwan. Tropical training, I love it. <laughs> I love the, the alliteration of that. Tropical training. I wish it was in like Thailand because they'd be like tropical training in Thailand. But no. In Taiwan uh, though, so that kind of works. Taiwan. Oh, okay, that does work. Yeah, <laughs> tropical training in Taiwan. I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm, <laughs> sorry, I'm half a bit down. So, 
Suji was essentially responsible for this. Although not an officer in charge of the training operation, he was a staff officer, or the staff officer in charge, meaning that the detail was all his. He was also tasked with planning the uh, the detail of the invasion of Malaya and Singapore. So those, at that time, were, of course, British colonies. So although he's subordinate to the commanding officer, his personality and connection soon meant that he became the driving force of the entire department. As people said about him, his brilliant maverick spirit inspired fanatic devotion in younger uh, staff officers, who soon dubbed him the god of operations. I mean, I don't know. The god of operations. Bestowing such. That's so boring. On on people who clearly have a slightly psychotic disposition. So, Suji kind of operated in mysterious ways. So. One of his followers, a Captain Aseda, had been transferred to a desk job in the war ministry. So he kind of quickly became tired of pencil pushing. And being a committed Pan-Asianist, Aseda decided to abandon his post and his family and head to Indonesia where he could join the struggle directly and help fight against Dutch colonialism. So on the way, he visited Suji to divulge his plan Suji, kind of like being a fellow traveller, he believed that his his friend would support his decision. But instead, Suji immediately sent Aseda under armed guard back to Japan. So instead of being like a arrested or like court martialed, he was just allowed to kind of like retire without any kind of like further controversy. Um, but I mean, like, he was kind of miffed at this. Like this was his career, so um, he immediately returned to Taiwan to have it out with his betrayer. And instead, just became completely enamoured with him again. He just got like completely talked around. So, although removed from the army, he now became a spy directly working for Suji, and ended up just basically doing exactly what he planned to do in the first place. So, <laughs> I don't, I know, I no idea why he did that. Just had him fired from his job, and then just sent him to do the same thing anyway. I mean, I guess maybe he like he didn't trust the Japanese state apparatus to do what he thought was needed. Or maybe he just wanted complete control over this intelligence operation. I don't know. I mean, like, there you go. That's that's. No him. one knows. <laughs> Following the no- so this uh, is like 1941, right? Yeah, yeah. We're getting into kind yeah. of like just closing on the war now. Yeah. So, uh, following the Norman incident, Suji kind of like understood now that Japan's weakness was in its weaponry. So much of the weaponry used by the uh, Imperial Japanese Army throughout the war was obsolete and quite far behind like what the uh, the Allies were producing at the time. So as such, he believed that training and attitude would have to unco- overcome physical obstacles. And so, to achieve this, he decided to pack thousands of fully equipped soldiers into the swelling holds of ships, three to a tatami, so that's like a sleeping mat that measures six by three feet. Three people on that. Uh, and kept them there what? for a week in temperatures of up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 48 degrees centigrade. Oh my god, with, is, that is crazy. With one little water bottle each. That is, I don't understand what that is supposed to achieve. No, not me neither. Like Because it's been like 32 degrees, 33 here, like last couple of weeks. Yeah. And exactly, I yeah. am like dead. Being, yeah, being in like a cushy flat, like that's just too much. Yeah, I've got two fans and my like window open, and I'm like, this is too much. I cannot even, <laughs> like, I can't even sleep because, and I don't know how these people survived it. 
And also, they had to share the Hulk with just uh, with horses. Just got the horses in there as well. <laughs> Poor horses. I know. Like they don't want it. This war is nothing to do with them, and they're just being stuck in this hole. Yeah, there's no horses in World War Two. Like they are past it. Like there was still <laughs> cavalry in World War One. Yeah. But like in by World War Two, no, there's no cavalry. Well, I don't know why there are horses there. Dra- drag the artillery, I think, basically. Yeah, poor but, I mean, guys. Like, yeah, that's not cool. I love this. Is like me when I watch movies. If there's like a <laughs> human death, I'm like, oh, whatever. Human. <laughs> and if, if there's a horse death or <laughs> yeah. any kind of animal death, I'm like, how dare they? This I is say, horrific. Because this is nothing to do with them. They don't care. They. <laughs> but the dog in John Wick, I'm like. <laughs> that puppy Ben will get killed, and then Paul was looking at me like, because he'd seen it before, and I was like, "Look oh, away, no. look away!" The puppy's gonna get killed. <laughs> so after keeping them in the uh, in the ship for uh, for a week, they were then landed on open beaches under simulated combat conditions. So basically, just fired upon with like live ammunition. Some like shells and stuff, just to just just you know, just to really cap that... off a really good week, you know. Yeah, because they were clearly had loads of sleep. Exactly, they were really hydrated. That's the way you wanna. That's where you wanna end a hard, stressful week. Just with a bit well, of simulated just... combat. No, it's just not okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is just not okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Suji was pretty committed to his attack on the Western powers. So much so that when he heard that. Then Prime Minister Kanoe planned to meet Roosevelt on a one-on-one meeting, hopefully to straighten things out and uh, prevent war from breaking out. Suji decided to hatch a plan to assassinate him. Of course he did. Of course he did. It's a really did. great idea. This is the same man that's prevented the uh, the army from rebelling before, but Kanoe never did get his meeting, so there was no 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 like assassination here. But like it does show how determined he was to start this war. So yeah, upon his failure to secure peace, Kanoe resigned and was replaced by Suji's buddy, General Tojo. Tojo, welcome back to the podcast. So, with Tojo taking over, Suji decided to make his own little reconnaissance flight over Malaya, flying over the peninsula himself. (laughs) So Suji really changed his existing plan. His invasion of Malaya was ready. So what was his plan? So, Singapore was considered basically just impregnable from the sea. Like, it had coastal guns, like, pointing out towards, like, the coast. So, like, nothing could approach from that that direction. To the north, there was Malaya, which was covered in jungle with only two main roads running down down it. So, like, one on the uh, the east and one on the west. That's crazy. It's it's quite a, like, thin little peninsula. Yeah, it's still still the way that way, like, ah. Just, like, two roads through the jungle. Yeah, yeah, just like just running down the thing. So yeah, it's kind of like roads like crossing in between, but like it's just two like main uh, motorways. So kind of like the British kind of like considered the jungle like impassable, and then they thought they could just like easily defend those uh, those roads. But Suji thought otherwise. So traditionally, historians have always said that like the Japanese have been planning the invasion of like Southeast Asia for years, and like they kind of like tra- trained themselves like to such a degree that they were like jungle. Superman, but this isn't true. As Sushi says, like his unit, which preferred the preferred the invasion, was completely underfunded and completely undersupplied. Uh, the military units he was given were not considered the best by any stretch of the imagination. But he, they were just like trained really hard. Obviously, being stuck in a ship for a week with no water in 
Yeah, this is all the training I've had. And the only jungle training they actually underwent was in Taiwan. But still, they were able to use the jungle completely to their advantage. So, like, everything that was considered impassable by the British, they kind of, like, just, like, mentioned, like, cut their way through. While the British kind of set up, like, defences along the road, the Japanese would just, like, appear out of nowhere, like, basically from behind, and the British would just panic and either fall back or just surrender. Yeah, we don't really have a lot of jungle over here. Yeah, it's not really, like... (laughs) It's not really our forte in jungle. Yeah, but maybe some, like, woods probably the best week people yeah, do that. Yeah, but like, even that. Even then, yeah. <laughs> kind of rubbish. No, I, that, I, I take that badge here. There's some good walks. <laughs> Don't, you know, Devil's Punch Bowl was pretty sweet. So, so Suji's plan worked on the basis of knocking the British forces like off balance like straight away and just continuing to attack for, like constantly and completely like just, just to deny the enemy of like just the, the chance of uh, recovering. So this is incredibly daring since I mean, the Japanese were always in a precarious uh, position as far as supplies went. So yeah, basically the Japanese just relied on on what they captured, like food-wise. Like, at the beginning, they just had bikes. They barely had any trucks and they just captured trucks as they went along, which kind of like helped speed up their advance even more. It sounds like a video game. Like trying to get through the forest and you yeah. like capture a truck and then you capture another truck and then you're like, trying to get through... His plan was genuinely quite a feat of uh, military genius. So an attacking army of 16,000 troops managed to defeat 150,000 British and Commonwealth soldiers. So I mean, like, traditional military logic says an attacking force should outnumber the defenders by 3 to 1, and the Japanese attacked with odds of the reverse, basically. So that's quite impressive, really. Following the final Japanese attack on Singapore, 120,000 British and Commonwealth soldiers surrendered to just 30,000 Japanese troops. That is crazy. That's four times the amount. Yeah, that's just weird. Yeah. So with this huge victory, Suji became famous across the whole of Japan. So The whole of Japan. The whole of, of Japan. Hmm. So as I said before, Suji was a committed Pan-Asianist. And... I mean, by committed, I really mean he was a complete and utter fanatic. So, as Japanese forces approached Malaya, he circulated a pamphlet written by him amongst the troops, and it read, A hundred million Asians were tyrannised by 300,000 whites with the help of Asian collaborators, namely the overseas Chinese. Uh-oh. Yep. So based on this excuse, he had earlier direct Japan-Singapore-based espionage networks to collect names of all the anti-Japanese Chinese residents on the island. So in the first chaotic days after the fall of Singapore, he ordered the systematic round-up and execution of thousands of Chinese deemed hostile to the Japanese. This includes civil servants, teachers and lawyers. So all of these were just trucked out to secluded beaches and basically just shot and like pushed into the sea. So this I was bet there as... were loads of people who had done nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah. so yeah, this, this was known as the Sekching uh, Massacres, which translates basically into purge through cleansing. Uh, and it later read to North Malaya where tens of thousands more were killed. Yeah, it was just ended up completely in indiscriminate killing. Like, Japanese soldiers would just kind of like pick people off the street and just like ship them off as well yeah it, it, it's basically just like one of the worst atrocities in the history of war yeah it's insane that more people like don't really know about it yeah i mean like and also like the reasoning that he kind of like 
he gave for it. It's just, uh, it's just grace. Like, to, to, yeah, to to make that kind of like excuse excuse for your for a discriminate killing is 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 disgusting, really. <clears throat> so, so following uh, his victory in Singapore, he was then sent to the Philippines. At this time, the Japanese high command become frustrated with the lack of progress of General Homer. So Homer was commanding the forces in the Philippines. He was kind of like a devout Buddhist, a humanist, and a poet, and a man that was probably not best suited for such a high rank in the Imperial Japanese Army. Yeah. But he, he was a talented commander who, like Suji, managed to accomplish much with, with very little against uh, the American forces. So Homer's problem in the eyes of the uh, the Imperial Japanese uh, headquarters was that, he, was that he was unwilling to unnecessarily sacrifice his troops. So he was basically just like not a, ja- a classic uh, Japanese commander. At this time, the Americans had retreated to the Bataan Peninsula, which was well defended and proved to be a problem for the attacking Japanese. So Suji was supposed to provide Homer with the backbone he needed in uh, in inverse commas. <laughs> Luckily, before Suji turned up, uh, Homer was able to get his plan in order and uh, launched a well coordinated attack with ample artillery and air support that brought the uh, Bataan battle to a swift end. However, Homer wasn't done with the uh, the campaign in the Philippines. Corregidor still needed subduing, and so with Homer busy, it was left to Suji to deal with the prisoners captured during the Bataan campaign. So, Suji, being Suji, believed that it was both politically expedient and morally just, those were his words, to kill everyone. In his view, the white colonialists deserved to be killed. He also thought that the Filipinos who fought beside them had betrayed the Asian cause and would hinder Japanese uh, administration and so should just be eliminated as well. I do, we just don't understand that at all. No. I mean, I mean, the whole thing is horrific, but I just don't understand that that second part where it's like, if you really are like looking to kind of unite Asia, exactly, you're not doing a very good job if you're then like not the way to do it, killing Asian people. <laughs> And also, I mean, like, if he kind of like is trying to make this argument, then like that's a that's a moral victory you have to win. Like, killing everyone is not going to that's not going to do it. No. But yeah, he, he's basically just an, an insane extremist. So, numerous con- uh, contemporary Japanese accounts and uh, and and uh, yeah, and research uh, confirmed that Suji encouraged, urged. And in some cases, ordered the killing of American and Filipino prisoners of war and civilians. Colonel Saburo Watanabe, a, uh, an officer in the Japanese army, recalled meeting Suji on the route of what became the da- Bataan Death March. He said, seeing a large number of American prisoners of war on the road, Suji urged Watanabe, how about we just kill them all? Watanabe, how about, how about... How we just kill them all? We'll just kill them all. Watanabe reportedly objected, but Suji implied he was conveying Imperial General Headquarters' wishes, and so many of the officers just went along with him. So once the beatings and the killings began, brutality against the prisoners became normalised and widespread. So in the end, and this is, this is just grim, he's like, um, 
statistics. So some 600 Americans were killed, but f- between 5,000 and 10,000 Filipinos it just it makes so it horrific and makes, no makes no like yeah. mathematical sense as well like say it's like okay even say it's like the the low end say it's 5000 what have they yeah. done like probably nothing absolutely like, goes against like the original like philosophy of like pan-asianism that's how who are you winning over with that it's just, yeah nobody it's just ridiculous <sighs> So, following this, the Japanese forces captured Philippine Supreme Court Chief Justice Joe Santos in the southern Philippines. So he was a very popular kind of like figure in the Philippines. And so Major General uh, Kawaguchi, the Japanese commander in the south, urged that the respected Santos have a role in the Japanese administration in the Philippines following uh, the battle. Suji instead ordered the Chief Justice executed. And this was just carried out on his words. So when Kawaguchi learned that um, the General Homer had, ing- had agreed with him that, that the Santos should be included in the, uh, the administration after after the battle was won, he demanded of a colleague why he had allowed the, uh, the, co- uh, the execution. The colleague said to Kawaguchi that it was Imperial General Headquarters who had insisted on Santos's execution. Um... When asked what he meant, uh, the officer stammered, well, it was Suji. So Suji was just basically oh, reeling yeah. off fake orders from the top that didn't exist. <laughs> so, following the Philippines, he was sent to Guadalcanal. So, in nineteen in August 1942, the United States launched a surprise attack on the Japanese airfield at Guadalcanal. So there weren't there any main defenders there at the beginning. Um, so when the Americans turned up, they just kind of like fled into the jungle. Um, so after that, the, Amer- the, the Japanese basically set, set about recapturing their airfield. So for the next six months, the Japanese were engaged in a costly and ultimately doomed campaign to regain the Strip. And this would prove to be Japan's first major defeat on land. So... Reinforcements were just like repeatedly poured onto the island, even when it became impossible to land supplies. So because of that, there were just like tons of soldiers, no food, barely any ammunition. And so in the end, more Japanese ended up dying from disease and starvation than from actual enemy action. So still, despite their lack of even the most basic equipment, the Japanese repeatedly advanced on the field, flinging themselves against well-dug-in machine guns and also enemy tanks. They didn't have any tanks to call them. Well, they had like two or something ridiculous like that. Mm. So, like overall, and once they were blown up, like nothing else came. So yeah, attack after attack failed, and so headquarters decided to like, turn to the uh, the genius of Malaya, Suji, to rescue the situation. So I mean, like he'd proved himself uh, it's kind of like a master of mobile warfare, but there was basically just no mobile warfare to had here to be had here. The airstrip was kind of just like it was backed, it backed onto the sea. It was easily defendable. They could just like dig like a, a series of just trenches around the outside, and yeah, that was it basically. So yeah, any battle would have to be fought in kind of like the the vein of like a World War One, ba- like Battle of Attrition. Yeah, so and like going is, trenches. Yeah, just throw troops yeah. at it and hope in the end you, you're Ugh. like kill more of them than they'll kill of you and get through or not or like they'll just run out of troops basically but that's basically just a battle that japan couldn't win i mean like like the material might of 
to the United States versus going back to Japan at that time. It's just, yeah, that's not a fair fight. But yeah, of course, still they tried. So his plan called for, I mean, like he attempted to like come up with some kind of like plan. So his plan called for a coordinated uh, assault by three different infantry forces converging on Henson Field from three different directions. So these forces would have to move through what would normally be considered impassable jungle. So while this provided the benefit of surprise and meant that the troops would arrive with their unsupported, so, I mean, like, you can't drag heavy artillery through the jungle. So it's just literally, like, troops with, like, light weaponry. It also meant that basically all the troops that turned up, like, at the beginning of the... Uh, at their uh, starting points were already ravaged by malaria. Oh, so great. That's a good, it's a good position to be it's in. It's a really good start, yeah. So, yeah, the plan called basically for these fortresses, all the, like, the three forces to reach their points of attack around the same time and launch their attacks simultaneously. But unfortunately, a series of kind of like failures, miscommunications, and mainly just falling outs between like the commanders meant that this didn't happen. The latter, almost entirely... To Suji's fault, because he's very good at falling out with people that disagree with him. <laughs> so, this meant that that didn't happen. So what we had instead was three separate infantry attacks on a really well-defended Henderson Field at like different times. I mean, like obviously that ended in disaster. It, it, it took like three days of heavy fighting for the Japanese to realise that the, the attack wasn't going to work. Yeah, and this basically resulted in the death of 3,000 Japanese soldiers for 86 uh, American casualties. That's absolutely insane. Yeah, that is... Uh... It's like the opposite. Not the opposite, it's even worse than what yeah. happened. Just like, I just, yeah, I can't get my head around those statistics. That's just absolutely ridiculous. That's absolutely mad. <laughs> Come on. So with this... Uh... He fucked up. This, 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 yeah, this calamity, the magic of Suji was over. So, like, the defeat did actually stun Suji himself and chastened him, apparently. So he phoned Imperial General Headquarters after this and did bear full responsibility. Uh, he said that he had underestimated the enemy's strength and had insisted on a flawed operational plan. Uh, and he said, I deserve 10,000 deaths. So... The god of operations had now lost his deified status. So, after this, he was recalled to Tokyo in late 1942. He was uh, then assigned to, as an instructor to the military academy for a while, and then later, for some reason, I don't know why he was then promoted, but promoted to full colonel, and then sent on to Nanjing uh, in China, which was considered then a military backwater, where he languished for months. However, here he did manage to make some important contacts within the Guomindong, the uh, the Chinese ruling party, uh, which would prove important later. So he was his military career wasn't entirely over. It seemed he was called to put out one last fire, but this wasn't a fight. This was a fight he de- he definitely couldn't put out. So Japanese had been almost annihilated following the disastrous attacks at Kohima and Imphal. So following this, Suji was assigned to the thirty third Army, which faced the Chinese in northeastern Burma. So they kind of the Japanese forces kind of like falling back in a, in complete disarray at this time. So to help quell the panic, Suji decided to ostentatiously take a bath on the front line under enemy fire. 
That's mental. It's like, just, oh, what will make them see that I'm so brave and there's nothing to be worried about? I know, we'll have a bathe. Just drag a bathtub out into the front line. Why not? Why not? Also, in order to uh, calm his officers, I mean, I don't really know, understand how this, this helped the situation, but Suji reportedly ordered part of a dead US airman's thigh cutaway cooked and served to his officers. Some of the officers ate the flesh and some others didn't. Obviously, Suji did. Yeah, so Suji claimed that he derived special strength from eating the flesh of defeated enemies. Ooh. It's kind of grim. I mean, so grim. Oh my god. In May 1945, Imperial General Headquarters sent Suji to Bangkok to organise the Thai resistance. Uh, against the approaching allies which of course was a futile task the war was basically over and there was no way the Thais were gonna gonna carry on fighting that war Um, he set up his transfer um, he was sent with uh, completely dragging his feet he didn't want to be sent at all and uh, uh, describing his condition he said he had been wounded seven times and carried more than 30 Odd pieces of shrapnel, both large and small, like just in his body in general. On the eve of Japan's capitulation, Suji decided to flee rather than surrender. He knew the British and Americans sought him for the killings at Singapore and a Bataan. And with Japan out of the running, he decided that he needed to adjust his Pan-Asian vision to fit the new reality. So in his view, the only way to save Pan-Asianism was to support a China under Chiang Kai-shek. Ah, uh, this is where we get the Chiang Kai-shek from, I think, episode three? Three, I think I might yeah. be right. So this is Japan's old nemesis. This is the, like, the leader of China that they've been fighting since He clearly has no actual loyalty to Japan. No. <laughs> it seems... So yeah, to him, Chiang Kai-shek seems the most uh, likely candidate for Asian leadership now. However, Chiang Kai-shek's capital was uh, in Chungking, so that was thousands of miles away. So, Suji donned the robes of a Buddhist monk and hid in the temple while secretly contacting the Chinese nationalist agents he had made contact with during his time uh, serving with Wang Jingwei's government in Nanjing. So their officers, he says, were based on Surian Avenue. So this was next door to a British officers club. So those guys were searching for him and he just, like, ostentatiously just walked into, like, the... uh, the Chinese intelligence headquarters. So they, despite everything that happened over like the last decade, agreed <laughs> to take him to Chongqing. Oh, so mad! So to, so to cover his uh, his his tracks, he wrote a bunch of notes making out that he had committed suicide. So he left those for the police to find uh, to to throw his hunters off his scent. So overnight, uh, on the uh, night, yeah. So on the night of the 28th of October, he made a run for it. So after hiding in fields until morning, he took a rickshaw to a safe house supplied by the Chinese military on the outskirts of Bangkok. Then, disguised as a Chinese merchant in a white jacket, black trousers, with a white pith helmet and coloured glasses, he boarded a train on November the 1st with two Chinese escorts, one of whom was disguised as Thai military police. So then he then crossed into Vietnam, past British sentries, apparently, and onto the Chinese military headquarters in Hanoi. So at this time, the Chinese were tasked with accepting the surrender of Japanese troops in northern Vietnam, and they were basically just... At this time, the Chinese were kind of like helping out Ho Chi Minh 
So, according to him, after this, he left Hanoi on the 9th of March in a four-engines plane, which was piloted, apparently, by a giant American. So, I mean, like, the Chinese are helping him escape. The Americans are helping him escape. I mean, like, the Allies seem to be doing him quite a big favour at the moment. Yeah, weird. He landed in Chongqing 10 days later. So, there, while in Chongqing, he worked as a trainer for the National Revolutionary Army for the next three years. So, he kind of, like, just translated a lot of kind of um uh like Japanese kind of like military documents kind of helps them with their kind of uh, their tactics and helped kind of decipher a lot of like Japanese kind of like military technology as well. So he did that for the next three years. However, with the the Guomindong clearly losing the Chinese Civil War, Suji decided to submit his resignation. Yeah, in February nineteen forty eight. So this time, Suji was still wanted for war crimes, but he felt he just kind of like needed to see Japan again. So on <laughs> May the 26th, 1948, he touched down on Japanese soil for the first time in years. And according to him, kissed the ground. So the only reason he was not immediately arrested was because his old friend, Hattori, put him on the US payroll and persuaded the embryonic CIA to take Suji on as a covert agent. Was so, so mental. He's now working for the CIA. Yeah, everything he'd done, and the Americans just hired him instantly. So, like, uh, all of his war crimes are like just wiped. Yeah, and like the, the the craziest thing is like the relationship didn't even last. The CIA assessment judged him to be unreliable and ineffective. And no way, huh? Ju- judged that he was still a committed pan-Asianist and was largely anti-West, so they didn't use him for anything. So, following this, Suji decided to write his memoirs. So he published his first volume, The Underground Escape, in 1950. So that kind of was just a story of his escape from from Bangkok and uh, to China to, to join Chiang Kai-shek. This became a runaway bestseller, propelling him into public prominence. Um, he then published the second book uh, about Guadalcanal a year later. In 1952, he published his account of the Malaya Singapore campaign titled Britain, uh, Japan's Greatest Victory, Britain's Worst Defeat. It's actually quite a good book, that. I quite like that one. It's a good, it's a good account of the, uh, of the battle, actually. But yeah, it absolutely glosses over everything that he did wrong. War crimes. Just yeah, completely glosses over them. Totally glorifies himself. But that was, yeah, that was just kind of like the way all his books were, basically. Glossed over his failures and totally ignored his crimes. So, following this, in less than two years, Suji Rose become one of Japan's best known figures. And so Suji easily won election to the Diet, so the lower basically the House of Commons of Japan's yeah, parliament. He's become a politician in, now. Yeah. In 1952, where he continued his pan Asianist agitation. However, his popularity would prove to be somewhat short-lived. So Retired Major General Kawaguchi. This is the man that uh, <clears throat> he'd fought with in the Philippines. Or one of the guys he'd managed to fall out with uh, on Guadalcanal. Returned from uh, from imprisonment to Japan. Uh, blah. So Tsuji's poli- political success outraged Kawaguchi. He wrote a blistering account of Suji's wartime activities detailing Suji's role in the Singapore massacres, the Bataan Death March and the Santos Affair plus other crimes that he'd witnessed. He demanded Suji resign from Parliament. The press seized on this bombshell and Suji's uh, 
popularity quickly plummeted. Quickly, very quickly. So with this, he thought he should go to Vietnam. So this is where he'd spent much of his time and I mean, the area was racked by war and political intrigue. And Suji being Suji, he totally, he wanted in. Yes, he was like, a war! This is where I need to be. So before he left, he wrote a letter to President Kennedy addressing him as a war buddy. I don't know why. Uh, but yeah, advocating American neutrality in Southeast Asia. Following that, he took leave from Parliament and flew to Saigon, ostensibly on a personal fact-finding mission. However, Suji told a select number of others that he'd been asked to take the trip by then-Prime Minister Aikida. So yeah, he told friends and relatives that he hoped to bring peace to the region. So he contacted uh, Katsumi Akasaka, uh, a former military man, one of his buddies, who worked uh, for the Japanese officials, like the Japanese embassy, basically, in Laos. So after meeting him, the two drove by jeep to the suburb north of the Laotian capital, where Suji, again, donning the robes of a Buddhist monk, as he did before, surreptitiously slipped out of sight and into Vietnam. So, following this, Suji was never heard from again. That was so mad. He just it's vanished. Just vanished. He must, I'm convinced he must have been killed in the Vietnam War, right? I mean, like, after seven years, the Japanese government just officially declared him dead. But yeah, so no one mad. knows so for sure what happened to him. But CIA believed that Suji, pursuing his pan-Asianist vision, joined the communists fighting to expel American imperialists from Southeast Asia. There's a declassified report that says that. Uh, yeah, but just because they believe that, it doesn't mean that it's true. It's, yeah, exactly. But also, uh, it's a position taken by British historian Arthur Swinson, who writes, Since this date, he has not reappear- uh, reappeared, but information reaching the author from Japan indicates that he is back in uniform and serving as an operations officer. When one considers the ruthless and brilliance of the North Vietnamese operations, the hands of Masanobu to uh, Suji can be clearly seen. So yeah, I mean, like, if this is true, what's most significant about this is if he was sent by Prime Minister Ikeda, then, I mean, like, although Japan at this time hosted US troops on its soil, had US army bases on Iwo Jima and Okinawa, and yeah. although tied to uh, the US by treaty. In 1961, Japan was still clandestinely working against the Americans and still chasing the dream of an Asia free of, uh, of Western colonialism, even if they were semi uh, colonized themselves. I mean, like, I'm not sure how likely this is, but it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's definitely. quite interesting. I wonder if one day term. we'll actually find out like, what happened to him. Yeah. There might be people that are still alive that know. I mean, like, there must be or documents in Vietnam or there must, something. I reckon there must, someone knows, right? There must be a record in Vietnam, I reckon, somewhere. Yeah. I don't know when they will ever be uh, brought to the fore. I mean, there's kind of, like, interesting research coming out of Vietnam about this kind of period. So, I mean, like, it might it might be dug up by some. Yeah. But he's definitely dead uh, now. Because he would be, like, yeah, oh, yeah, 120. <laughs> But, but he was already quite old during the Vietnam War. Yeah, he was in his sixties. Yeah, that's crazy. But it's quite crazy, like a an and elected... he didn't have he didn't have like a a personal life, like a wife and stuff, did he? Oh no, he did. Yeah, he totally just oh, left he did. Him behind. He just ignored yeah, he her. He just left him behind. 
But like his kids were like growing up and went to university and with that. Like there is like a there's an article that talks about it in the uh in the Japan Times and uh yeah. Where like is a like there's a brief kind of like quote from his son who just said that like, he basically told his son that he was off. And oh. he, I think it was was it his son? It might have been his son he told he told that um he'd been sent by the Prime Minister, or maybe that was an innkeeper. I can't remember. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So he, yeah, he just yeah, left his family disappeared. and just decided to to join the struggle in Vietnam. Apparently, well, apparently, or maybe not. Maybe he doubled back and he yeah. lived out his life on a on a beach in Laos. Yeah, yeah. The other like the other kind of theory is he was just like he was just killed by uh, Laotian like communist guerrillas, or he was just like. Or I think other people think he was captured by the Chinese uh, communist like, agents and taken back to China and executed there. So I mean, like, yeah, there's lots of theories. Who knows? Wow. But the CIA believed a mystery. That he, he fought against. I mean, them. to be After... honest, whatever his end, he probably deserved it. Yeah, like, I mean, like he he's, had he's a lot of war crimes behind him. So yeah, definitely. I mean, like, it's quite cool if he did go and help the uh, the Vietnamese, but uh, I don't think that really makes up for everything else. No, it doesn't. So Dan, what are you doing with the rest of your evening? I am going to probably order a takeaway because I can't be able to cook now. Yeah, probably good drink the rest of the beers I bought and be a, a huge nerd and paint some miniatures. Yay! Yeah. And then um, it's see a very me rock and roll tomorrow. Friday night. Woo. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Actually, get to this weekend and next weekend. I'm actually going to socialize again for like the first time in months. I'm so excited. I'm yeah. genuinely excited. I'm excited to socialize. Look at us. <laughs> yeah. With our social anxieties. Real people. Um, yeah, I'm going to make some fake fish and chips. Fake fish and chips. Yeah, and uh, mushy peas and drink my beers. And what? yeah. Oh, um, what? Everyone... what is the fake fish made out of? Oh, it's uh, it's like corn. Oh, okay then. But it's pretty good, actually. It's, it's like fake fish fingers. It's the, uh, it's the texture, right? Because they're all like As far as I know. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give it a go. I'm Obviously, some, like I don't know. <laughs> I'll let you know. Okay, cool. We'll have a fish off. <laughs> I still um, like a uh, vegetarian bacon. That's still the best. That's oh just frazzles. God. That's great. That's warm frazzles. Yeah, frazzles. Do you frazzles are vegan? Actually, are they? Yeah. How random is that? That's impressive. So everyone, please, uh, if you could follow us wherever you're listening to us, that would be really, really cool. And follow us on Instagram and uh, Twitter at Have You Ever Pod. Yes, and um, we're planning on doing some sort of website soon, but we will let yeah. you know when that is live. Thank you very, very much for all your listens, and we'll see you next week for more people you may or may not have heard of. <laughs> Bye. Bye.